Part Three, Chapter Seventeen of The Job. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Job by Sinclair Lewis. Part Three, Man and Woman. Chapter Seventeen. Late in the summer of nineteen twelve, at a time when Una did not expect the return of her husband for at least three weeks. She was in their room in the afternoon reading Salesmanship for Women, and ruminatively eating lemon drops from a small bag. As though he were a betrayed husband dramatically surprising her, Mr. Schwartz opened the door, dropped a large suitcase, and stood, glaring. "'Well,' he said, with no preliminary, "'so here you are. For once you could—' "'Why, Ed, I didn't expect to see you for—' He closed the door and gesticulated. "'No, of course you didn't. Why ain't you out with some of your swell friends that I ain't good enough to meet, shopping and buying dresses and God knows what?' "'Why, Ed?' "'Oh, don't why Ed me. Well, ain't you going to come and kiss me? Nice reception when a man's come home tired from a hard trip.' wife so busy reading a book that she don't even get up from her chair and make him welcome in his own room that he pays for yes by why you didn't you don't act as though yes sure that's right lay it all on you wanted me to kiss you well neither would anybody if they'd had all the worries i've had sitting there worrying on a slow hot train that stopped at every pig pen yes and on a day coach too by golly Somebody in this family has got to economize. While you sit here cool and comfortable, not a thing on your mind but your hair, not a thing to worry about except thinking how damn superior you are to your husband. Oh, sure. But I made up my mind. I thought it all out for once, and I made up my mind to one thing. You can help me out by economizing anyway. Oh, Ed, I don't know what you're driving at. I haven't been extravagant ever. "'Why, I've asked you any number of times not to spend so much money for suppers and so forth.' "'Yes, sure, lay it all on to me. I'm fair game for everybody that's looking for a nice, soft, easy, safe boob to kick. Why, look there!' While she still sat marveling, he pounced on the meek little five-cent bag of lemon drops, shook it as though it were a very small kitten, and whined, "'Look at this!' candy or something all the while you never have a single cent left when i come home candy and ice cream sodas and matinees and dresses and everything you can think of if it ain't one thing it's another well you'll either save from now on look here what do you mean working off your grouch on or else you won't have anything to spend understand and when it comes down to talking about grouches i suppose you'll be real pleased to know this will be sweet news, probably, to you. I've been fired. Fired? Oh, Ed. Yes, fired, oh, Ed. Canned. Got the gate. Thrown out. Got the razzle-dazzle. Got the hook thrown into me. Bounced. Cayudled. That is, at least I will be, as soon as I let the old man get at me, judging from the love letters he's been sending me, inviting me to cut a switch and come out to the woodshed with him. Oh, Ed, dear, what was the trouble? She walked up to him, laid her hand on his shoulder. Her voice was earnest, her eyes full of pity. 
He patted her hand, seemed from her gentle nearness to draw comfort, not passion. He slouched over to the bed and sat with his thick legs stuck out in front of him, his hands in his trousers' pockets, while he mused. "'Oh, I don't hardly know what it is all about. My sails have been falling off all righty. But, good Lord, that's no fault of mine. I work my territory just as hard as I ever did, but I can't meet the competition of the floor-wax people. They're making an auto-polish now.' better article at a lower price, and what can I do? They got a full line, varnish, cleaner, polish, swell window displays, national advertising, swell discounts, everything, and I can't buck competition like that. And then a lot of the salesmen at our shop are jealous of me, and one thing and another. Well, now I'll go down and spit the old man in the eye a couple of times and get canned, unless I can talk him out of his bad acting. Oh, I'll throw a big bluff. I'll be the little misunderstood boy. But I don't honestly think I can put anything across on him. I'm—oh, hell, I guess I'm getting old. I ain't got the pep I used to have. Not but what J. Eddie Schwartz can still sell goods, but I can't talk up to the boss like I could once. I gotta feel some sympathy at the home office— and I by God deserve it, way I've worked and slaved for that bunch of cutthroats, and now, sure, that's the way it goes in this world. I tell you, I'm going to turn socialist. Ed, listen, Ed, please, oh, please don't be offended now, but don't you think perhaps the boss thinks you drink too much? How could he? I don't drink very much, and you know it. I don't hardly touch a drop, except maybe just for sociability. God, this temperance wave gets my goat. Lot of hot-air females telling me what I can do and what I can't do. Fellow that knows when to drink and when to stop. Drink? Why, you ought to see some of the boys. There's Burke McCullough. Say, I bet he puts away forty drinks a day if he does one. And I don't know that it hurts him any. But me... Yes, I know, dear. I was just thinking... "'Maybe your boss is one of the temperance cranks,' Una interrupted. Mr. Schwartz's arguments regarding the privileges of a manly man sounded very familiar. This did not seem to be a moment for letting her husband get into the full swing of them. She begged, "'What will you do if they let you out? I wish there was something I could do to help.' Dunno. There's a pretty close agreement between a lot of the leading paint and varnish people, gentlemen's agreement, and it's pretty hard to get in any place if you're in Dutch with any of the others. Well, I'm going down now and watch him guillotine me. You better not wait to have dinner with me. I'll be there late, thrashing all over the carpet with the old man, and then I gotta see some fellas and start something. Come here, Una. He stood up. She came to him, and when he put his two hands on her shoulders, she tried to keep her aversion to his touch out of her look. He shook his big, bald head. He was unhappy, and his eyes were old. Nope, he said. Nope, can't be done. You mean well, but you haven't got any fire in you. Kid, 
Can't you understand that there are wives who've got so much passion in them that if their husbands came home clean-lipped like I am, they'd, oh, their husbands would just naturally completely forget their troubles in love, real love, with fire in it, women that aren't ashamed of having bodies. But, oh, Lord, it ain't your fault. I shouldn't have said anything. There's lots of wives like you. More than one man's admitted his wife was like that, when he's had a couple drinks under his belt to loosen his tongue. You're not to blame, but... I'm sorry. Don't mind my grouch when I came in. I was so hot, and I'd been worrying and wanted to blame things onto somebody. Don't wait for me at dinner. If I ain't here by seven, go ahead and feed. Goodbye. All she knew was that at six a woman's purring voice on the telephone asked if Mr. Eddie Schwartz had returned to town yet, that he did not reappear till after midnight, that his return was heralded by wafting breezes with whiskey laden, that in the morning there was a smear of rice powder on his right shoulder, and that he was not so urgent in his attentions to her as ordinarily so her sympathy for him was lost. But she discovered that she was neither jealous nor indignant, merely indifferent. He told her at breakfast that, with his usual discernment, he had guessed right. When he had gone to the office he had been discharged. Went out with some business acquaintances in the evening. Got to pull all the wires I can now, he said. She said nothing. They had less than two hundred dollars ahead, but Mr. Schwartz borrowed a hundred from his friend, Burke McCullough, and did not visibly have to suffer from want of highballs, cigars, and Turkish baths. From the window of their room, Una used to see him cross the street to the café entrance of the huge Saffron Hotel, and once she saw him emerge from it with a fluffy blonde. But she did not attack him. She was spellbound in a strange apathy, as in a dream of swimming on forever in a warm and slate-hued sea. She was confident that he would soon have another position. He had overridden her own opinions about business, the opinions of the underling who never sees the great work as a rounded whole, till she had come to have a timorous respect for his commercial ability. Apparently her wifely respect was not generally shared in the paint business. At least Mr. Schwartz did not soon get his new position. The manager of the hotel came to the room with his bill and pressed for payment and after three weeks, after a night when he had stayed out very late and come home reeking with perfume, Mr. Schwartz began to hang about the room all day long and to soak himself in the luxury of complaining despair. Then came the black days. There were several scenes, during which she felt like a beggar about to be arrested, between Mr. Schwartz and the landlord, before her husband paid part of a bill whose size astounded her. 
Mr. Schwartz said that he was expecting something to turn up, nothing he could do but wait for some telephone calls. He sat about with his stockinged feet cocked up on the bed, reading detective stories till he fell asleep in his chair. He drank from unlabeled pint flasks of whiskey all day. Once, when she opened a bureau drawer of his by mistake, she saw half a dozen whiskey flasks mixed with grimy collars, and the sour smell nauseated her. But on food, they had to economize on that. He took her to a restaurant of fifteen-cent breakfasts and twenty-five-cent dinners. It was the parlor floor of an old brownstone house, two rooms with eggy tablecloths and moldings of dusty stucco. She avoided his presence as much as possible. Mrs. Wade, the practical dressmaker, who was her refuge among the women of the hotel, seemed to understand what was going on, and gave Una a key to her room. Here Una sat for hours. When she went back to their room, quarrels would spring up apropos of anything or nothing. The fault was hers as much as his. She was no longer trying to conceal her distaste, while he, who had a marital conscience of a sort, was almost pathetic in his apologies for being unable to show her a good time. And he wanted her soothing. He was more and more afraid of her as the despair of the jobless man in the hard city settled down on him. He wanted her to agree with him that there was a conspiracy against him. She listened to him and said nothing, till he would burst out in abuse. "'You women that have been in business simply ain't fit to be married. You think you're too good to help a man. Yes, even when you haven't been anything but dub stenographers. I never noticed that you were such a whale of a success.' I don't suppose you remember how you used to yawp to me about the job being too much for you, and yet when I want a little sympathy you sit there and hand me the frozen stare like you were the president of the Standard Oil Company and I was a bum office boy. Yes, sir, I tell you business simply unfits a skirt for marriage. No, she said, not for marriage that has any love and comradeship in it. "'but I admit a businesswoman doesn't care to put up with being a cow in a stable.' "'What the devil do you mean?' "'Maybe,' she went on, "'the businesswomen will bring about a new kind of marriage "'in which men will have to keep up respect and courtesy. "'I wonder, I wonder how many millions of women "'in what are supposed to be happy homes "'are sick over being chambermaids and mistresses till they get dulled and used to it. Nobody will ever know. All these books about women being emancipated, you'd think marriage had changed entirely. Yet right now, in 1912, in Panama and this hotel, not changed a bit. The business women must simply compel men to, oh, to shave. She went out. Perhaps she slammed the door a little, in an unemancipated way, to Mrs. Wade's room. 
that discussion was far more gentle and coherent than most of their quarrels. It may have been rather to the credit of Mr. Schwartz, it may have been a remnant of the clean pride which the boy Eddie Schwartz must once have had, that whenever she hinted that she would like to go back to work, he raged. "'So you think I can't support you, eh? My God! I can stand insults from all my old friends, the fellows that used to be tickled to death to have me buy em a drink, but now they dodge around the corner as though they thought I was going to try to borrow four bits from em. I can stand their insults, but by God, it is pretty hard on a man when his own wife lets him know that she don't think he can support her. And he meant it. She saw that felt his resentment. But she more and more often invited an ambition to go back to work, to be independent and busy, no matter how weary she might become, to die, if need be, in the struggle. Certainly that death would be better than being choked in muck. One of them would have to go to work anyway. She discovered that an old acquaintance of his had offered him an eighteen-dollar-a-week job as a clerk in a retail paint shop, till he should find something better. Mr. Schwartz was scornful about it, and his scorn, which had once intimidated Una, became grotesquely absurd to her. Then the hotel manager came with a curt ultimatum, "'Pay up or get out!' he said. Mr. Schwartz spent an hour telephoning to various acquaintances, trying to raise another hundred dollars. He got the promise of fifty. He shaved, put on a collar that for all practical purposes was quite clean, and went out to collect his fifty as proudly as though he had earned it. Una stared at herself in the mirror over the bureau and said aloud, "'I don't believe it. It isn't you, Una Golden, that worked and paid your debts. You can't, dear, you simply can't be the wife of a man who lives by begging, a dirty, useless, stupid beggar. Oh, no, no. You wouldn't do that.' You couldn't marry a man like that simply because the job had exhausted you. Why, you'd die at work first. Why, if you married him for board and keep, you'd be a prostitute. You'd be marrying him just because he was a good provider. And probably, when he didn't provide any more, you'd be quitter enough to leave him, maybe for another man. You couldn't do that. I don't believe life could bully you into doing that. Oh, I'm hysterical. I'm mad. I can't believe I am what I am. And yet I am. Now he's getting that fifty and buying a drink. Mr. Schwartz actually came home with forty-five out of the fifty intact. That was because he wanted to be able to pay the hotel manager and insultingly inform him that they were going to leave. The manager bore up under the blow. They did move to a furnished housekeeping room on West 19th Street, in the very district of gray rooms and pathetic landladies 
where Una had sought a boarding-house after the death of her mother. As furnished housekeeping rooms go, theirs was highly superior. Most of them are carpetless, rusty and small of coal-stove, and filled with cockroaches and the smell of carbolic acid. But the Maison Schwartz was almost clean. It had an impassioned green carpet, a bedspring which scarcely sagged at all, a gas range, and at least a dozen vases with rococo handles and blobs of gilt. "'Gee, this ain't so bad,' declared Mr. Schwartz. "'We can cook all our eats here, and live on next to nothing, purr, till the big job busts loose.' with which he prepared to settle down to a life of leisure. He went out and bought a pint of whiskey, a pound of steak, a pound of cheese, a loaf of bread, six cigars, and for her a bar of fudge. So far as Una could calculate, he had less than forty dollars. She burst out on him. She seemed to be speaking with the brusque voice of an accomplishing man. In that voice was all she had ever heard from executives, all the subconsciously remembered, man-driving force of the office world. She ordered him to go and take the job in the paint shop, at eighteen dollars a week or eight dollars a week. She briefly, but thoroughly, depicted him as alcohol-soaked, poor white trash. She drove him out, and when he was gone she started to make their rooms presentable, with an energy she had not shown for months. She began to dust, to plan curtains for the room, to plan to hide the bric-a-brac, to plan to rent a typewriter and get commercial copying to do. If any one moment of life is more important than the others, this may have been her crisis, when her husband had become a begging pauper and she took charge, began not only to think earnest, commonplace, little Una thoughts about mastering life, but actually to master it. End of chapter 17